everyone, and thank you for joining us on the MHDD Crossroads podcast. I'm really excited to welcome our guest today. It's Conchita Hernandez-Legoreta, and I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Do you think you can share a little bit about yourself, such as what organizations you're a part of and what led to your professional interest? Yeah, thank you so much. And you pronounced my name so well. <laughs> um, so I grew up in California in a small rural town. Um, I was born in Mexico. Um, I moved to California with all my siblings and um, I became undocumented. Um, I'm legally blind, as is one of my other siblings. So um, in the United States, I had an IEP. Um, and as I got older, um, an IEP is um, a legal document that students with disabilities have in public schools. So as I got older, I realized um, because my parents were Spanish speakers, um, they didn't really understand what was happening in school and school didn't really make it clear to them what was happening. Um, so I decided, you know, I wanted to, to be a teacher of blind students because I didn't think I received the adequate services. Um, so I got my master's at Louisiana Tech University. Um, I became a teacher of blind students. I worked in DC for a long time. Um, and then also looking at kind of more systematic issues that it's not just one school doing something, but rather system-wide issues that are happening. So um, I now work at the Maryland Department of Education and the Maryland School for the Blind, um, overseeing the education of blind students in the state of Maryland. I'm a part of the National Coalition of Latinxes with Disabilities, um, which brings together people with disabilities um, that are Latinx and sharing our experiences and resources. And we put on conferences as well. Um, we share a lot of same experiences where a lot of people feel like they didn't get what they needed in school. And um, there's just a lack of information and resources within our communities on topics of disability. Awesome, thank you for that introduction and I'm glad that I pronounced your name well. I try my best because I know people often don't pronounce mine the best <laughs> either. Uh, some of what you said is a great segue for what I wanted to ask you next because you talked about having your own IEP and a little bit about your inspiration for wanting to become a teacher. Um, as part of MHDD's digital storytelling series that we have, We've done some Spanish speaking episodes with caregivers who up to this point have all actually been um, immigrants that came to the United States from Latin America. And they've talked about some difficulties that they've had with the school system. You know, some examples is difficulty with getting an IEP plan. And in one case, one of them talked about not knowing what a 504 plan was. So I wanted to ask you, what are some rights that you think all parents should know that they have with the school system or even just rights in general? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think the first thing everybody needs to know is that the IEP is a legal binding document. Um, and that as parents, you have the right to contest any of the information and you are a part of the decision-making team. Um, one thing I heard a lot growing up from my parents was like, oh, um, you know, because we're coming from places that don't have any services, any any education for people with disabilities, they saw it as a favor. So they would say, um, oh, the school is being so nice providing us with something. And in retrospect, you know, they weren't, they were doing the bare minimum, but our families don't know that. And my, my parents had no idea that it was a legal binding document. So that would be the first thing. The second thing is they need to know that they can request an IEP meeting at any time and the school must honor that. Um, so if they learn later that, oh, I didn't know about this or I connected with an advocate who helped me realize maybe the goals need to change. 
Um, a parent can request an IEP meeting at any time, even if the IEP meeting just happened and it must happen within a timely manner. Um, the next thing, especially for communities that are immigrants and come speak other languages at home, um, they need to know that they have the right to an interpreter in any meeting that has to do with the IEP or their child, and the school must provide that. Um, many times, um, you know, I was an interpreter at my own IEP meetings or um, a siblings or interpreters at IEP meetings, and that's just not okay. Um, that is that is not what should be happening. It should be somebody that's trained, that knows the vocabulary. And if a parent shows up to a meeting and there is not an interpreter, they should ask for the meeting to be rescheduled until there is one. Um, the next thing is that parents have the right to fully understand the decisions being made about their child and ask as many questions as, as they need to fully understand. Um, so especially for immigrant communities, understanding that the school is not doing you a favor, it is their legal right <laughs> to, to provide this for you. And so you should understand what is happening. And even if you have to ask a lot of questions and get clarification, a lot of times professionals, we tend to use a lot of acronyms and a lot of really big jargon. And especially when it gets translated into Spanish, not only is it acronyms and jargon in English, but now it's in Spanish, which you know, a lot of times it's like new vocabulary that they've never heard of in their life. So they should really understand what's going on without feeling that um, that they're taking it over time or that, oh, it's something basic I should know. They should really get um, they should really get involved in understanding the IP process fully. You made a lot of good points. I'm glad you emphasize how it's a legal binding document and that, yeah, it's not necessarily a, they're doing you a favor and that parents do have all these rights, these rights that maybe they're not aware of. That sort of like echoes a little bit of what I've heard from some caregivers. Based on your education and experience in special education, do you think mental health has been prioritized enough in schools for students with disabilities? Yeah, um, absolutely not. <laughs> and part of that is um, that many educators still see disability and mental health as a negative. So they don't understand disability as an identity. They don't understand disability justice. So um, when a student has a disability, they have negative feelings about it, even if they are providers or general education teachers. Um, so especially when a student has a need for mental health services, there's a there's a there's a limited amount of providers that provide mental health services in schools. And so students get prioritized that have the most significant needs or that is documented in their IEP, right? Because that has it has to happen. Um, some schools have more police officers than they have mental health providers. And so that's a huge issue that we need to we need to be dealing with. And then on top of that, there is stigma within our communities. Um, there's a lot of stigma within the Latinx community around mental health. And it's like, oh, are you crazy? Is that why you need um, mental health services? Um, and which is very ironic because there's so much trauma and stuff as being a part of the immigrant experience and very few people get mental health um, support in order to deal with that. So there isn't enough in schools. It, it's the lack of resources, the lack of understanding um, on both ends, on the school end with people not understanding disability and then also on in the community end with parents and families not understanding the need for mental health services. Thank you. It does seem like, yeah, there's a lot of stigma, like you mentioned, and it seems like schools could be like a great 
place to start addressing that, especially considering that, you know, people are there during some of their most formative years. That'd be mm-hmm. a great place to start talking about like disability justice and letting go of that stigma. That sort of goes well with my next question I want to ask you is, what advice would you give to educators who want to make their classrooms or their schools more inclusive? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. I think the first thing that educators need to do is they need to learn about disability rights. They need to learn about disability justice um, and they need to teach their students and empower their students with disability. Um, when I was in school, I never learned about disabled role models. I didn't know it was a thing. I thought it was like, oh, I'm there's something wrong with me, so I get some help. Um, but it was never like, oh, this is a great person who did all who did this and that. You know, we learn about all these amazing civil rights icons, which we absolutely should, and we should also be learning about um, disabled icons and heroes to look up to. Um, but that doesn't happen unless educators understand that and and understand it themselves and educate themselves about disability so that they can then teach their students Um, because students with disabilities in school need to have disabled role models. Um, The second thing I would tell educators is you need to learn about accessibility. (laughs) There's so many educators who are providing inaccessible materials all the time um, and a big, you know, people use the term a lot, universal design for learning. And they're like, oh, we use universal design for learning. We teach kids in multiple modes and ways, and yet their content is inaccessible. Um, So I would highly recommend that educators um, find out about accessibility and what they can do. Um, And a myth that I hear constantly is, oh, well, each student is individual. So if I create something, I, I create it for that individual child. And while that is correct, um, accessibility is universal and that if you make your content universal, then that, that you can you can take that document, that presentation, and then that child can modify it based on what they need because you've already made it accessible. If you have scanned something in a copy machine, there's very little that student can do to make it accessible. Um, and so that's kind of one of my biggest things is like make all your content accessible from the ground up. Um, and I don't think educators are taught that and especially general educators who get maybe a semester of special education um, in their coursework. Um, and that's a lot. Some don't get any at all when they're absolutely going to be working with students with disabilities. There is not one general educator that won't have a student with a disability among their students. Um, so I would say learn about disability culture, disability justice, um, disabled role models, teach that to your students, and then apply accessibility into everything you do. You are so right. I've worked like with the school board both in Utah and in Florida um, and never not that I can think of, remember hearing like accessibility even come up or yeah, in terms of like teaching methods or even just like materials as well, which you would think would come up if you're working with students with disabilities. That's huge. Mm-hmm. And I love that you mentioned like universal design for learning. We talked to someone about it recently and they made a point like if you go through it as a sort of checklist in a way you're like missing like the larger point and maybe it's not truly making something accessible. Um, I wanted to bring up the article that you wrote with Refinery29, which I believe we can put a link for in our show notes because you talked about a number of important topics. And one of them was about how you believe there's this misconception that the Latinx community is inherently more ableist. And I want to ask you, 
why do you think this misconception is being perpetuated and has that had an effect on resources or services? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think this is like a complex question in the sense of in everything in the United States, the default is white. Um, and so whenever we talk about another group, it takes on a very different language. So um, sometimes, you know, educators be like, oh, it's, it's, it's in their culture. Latin students do this because it's part of their culture. And I'm like, where did you get that? Like, I think you're trying, but you would never say that about, you know, a white child. Oh, they're doing this because it's part of their culture. Um, and I think people are trying to be understanding, trying to um, really be like culturally competent, but sometimes they're missing the ball. Um, so in terms of ableism, I hear a lot that people say, oh, the Latinx community is, is more ableist. And the issue isn't that the Latino community is more ableist because ableism is everywhere. Rather, the Latino community lacks the resources and the information. Um, so as we talked about, you know, I, I went through the school system. My parents had no idea what the IEP system actually meant. Um, so when there are conversations about disability, when there are conversations about empowerment, when there are conversations, they tend to happen on college campuses, which the Latino community is not accessing, or they tend to happen in English, which the Spanish speaking community is not accessing. And so we are being um, robbed of the opportunity to learn about these things. Um, and so, Yes, there, are, there is a lot of stigma on about disability, um, but it is because of the lack of resources and information. And so what, what I hear from educators is like, oh, they, they came from Mexico. They have such negative ideas on disability. Oh my God, this is what they believe. And it's kind of like taking it from a negative standpoint where we need to really be looking at, okay, so how can we as educators make sure that we're communicating with a family? How can we make sure that we are having these conversations? How can we understand where it is they're coming from? Um, and one of, one of the things I also like to point out, and I think it might be one of your next questions, is um, the difference between like individualism and, and interdependence. And so the Latinx community, because there has been such a lack of information, a lack of resources, a lack of supports, um, and that includes kind of services in home countries that just the government doesn't provide you with anything or any type of support. Um, the Latinx community in general and a lot of communities are um, very interdependent. So everybody works together. You think of community before thinking of an individual. And so because of that, disability has kind of fallen within that where if somebody has a disability, because there is no other structure to help support, the community comes around and, and helps. Or, um, that individual and kind of works together. You made a lot of really good points there. You're right. I was going to ask you next about uh, independence versus interdependence. So I kind of want to like clarify, do you think like the, the emphasis on independence as part of like the disability like movement, does that make it harder maybe for some people of color to connect with the movement? Yeah, absolutely. Not not just with the movement, but with services in general, um, because services are so specific on the individual. Um, so I used to work as a rehab counselor um, prior to being a teacher blind student, and it was a big disconnect. Somebody would come in with their whole family, you know, their parents and their siblings, and it was just like a whole 
crew would show up and the and the provider would be like oh no this is just for you we don't want your family influencing you we want this to be just what you think and it's like it was a disconnect because that person was like well this isn't just about me i live with my family they're the ones who provide my services and my support so how can i make this decision and so some people would walk away from services because they said if i can't be include if my whole family my support systems can't be included in this decision making then i don't want to be a part of that um and it absolutely hurts um communities of color with disabilities um because individualism um kind of takes away from our narratives of how we're able to do things um, and how we provide um, when there is a void of services, a void of support, a void of um, help per se, um, then that's where community comes in. And so saying, you know, it may have been easier for other groups to, to have an individualistic mindset in order to get certain things, but that, that really hasn't worked for people of color because that's never been the case. And because we've never been at the forefront of those issues. So for example, um, the disability rights movement started in California um, and it was mainly, there was a lot of people involved, people of color, but they were never part of the narrative. They were never the ones doing the interviews. They were never the ones um, writing the stories. They were never the ones whose names we remember. We only remember the white people that were there. And so they were like, okay, what do, what do we do? So there are systems that you create of community where systems are lacking. Um, and that's one of the reasons why the National Coalition of Latinxes with Disabilities came along as a way to like support our community um, where there aren't systems in place where, you know, somebody might go to an independent living center for services, but it doesn't mix in with their culture. It doesn't mix in with the way they view community. I can see how it'd be really upsetting to be a parent and to be working with the provider and to sort of be pushed out, I guess, of the services that they're providing, especially because, mm -hmm. you know, it's just sort of like a little bit from my own experience and in talking to other Latinx people, like the use of support systems is a huge strength. Like, mm -hmm. and you, I believe like when we're working with people, we should be strengths-based and taking that away would be a huge detriment. Um, you mentioned the coalition. I want to see if you could tell me a little bit more about the National Coalition of Latinx with Disability and who do you think would benefit from joining it? Yeah, um, so the National Coalition of Latinx with Disabilities is a nationwide organization um, that is really this, you know, we, we were all kind of individually in our little niches across the United States coming across the same type of barriers. Um, you know, trying to be included in disability spaces, um, but not being white enough to be accepted, and then trying to um, attend, you know, cultural spaces, but not fully being accepted because of disability. So, so that it's kind of like, no matter where you go, you're, you don't, people don't really understand, and also just the availability of resources, right? So, where do you go if you need information about how immigration in, or d disability impacts immigration. Immigration places sometimes don't know, disability centers don't know. So we came together and formed this organization to just provide a place for everybody to come together and network with each other and provide support, but then also provide um, information. So we have like a blog post where people post different information about their stories. 
Um, we have like an immigration commit subcommittee who works on um, immigration issues for people with disabilities. Um, and we have different, different categories. So I would say anybody who identifies as having a disability, being Latinx um, is more than welcome to join. And um, I, I consider it like finding community. Um, and as you talked about earlier, you know, how, how important support systems are, um, and especially support systems that understand you, um, because a lot of times you're the only person in your family that has a disability. So your family doesn't understand you. And then your work, you're the only person with a disability or the only person of color. So it's just a support system for anybody who would want it. That's great. I like the emphasis of like how you mentioned talking about people that have immigrated that have disabilities, because I've noticed that you know, so there's conversations about disability, there's conversations about immigration, and sometimes it's a little bit like, you know, they're not highlighted in the conversation a whole lot. And that seems like a gap that we need to address because then you're gonna be not giving them like enough representation. Absolutely, and if I can add something to that, there, um, one of the big things, immigration impacts people with disabilities on, on every level, but one of the big things that had happened was the public charge rule. Um, and that pretty much was putting in place um, certain if if you used certain benefits you you were you were barred from adjusting status so you couldn't get a green card you couldn't get citizenship um, and for people with disabilities it became extra important to try to fight this because people with disabilities need the services um, for rehabilitation to survive and so it it disproportionately impacted people with disabilities but a lot of times when i would read articles about it especially from written from the immigrant perspective without a disability lens, it, uh, a disability was completely kept out of the conversation. When I'm like, this impacts, it, it hugely impacts people with disabilities that are immigrants um, to be able to, you know, to live in their communities. Um, like you can't access any type of food stamps, any type of medical support, um, any type of rehabilitation, um, which people with disabilities need. And that it, I think it's changed under Biden. I'm not exactly sure, maybe cut that out. Um, but but it, it is a huge impact for people with disabilities. And now that they're thinking of, you know, comprehensive immigration reform. So how are people with disabilities included in that? Um, because some people with disabilities can't work. I mean, a lot of times immigration reform is tied to work um, and employment. And so what does that look like for people with disabilities? Mm -hmm. It was... I like how you quickly mentioned there how maybe it's changed under Biden because that's something I noticed yeah, like yeah. especially with immigration is huge is you always have to stay up to date with the most current information because you, yeah. you don't know if things have changed you don't know what you're eligible for anymore like mm -hmm. one second there's something you have to worry about and then you find out that that's changed and that can impact your life a lot. Absolutely. As a parting question sometimes we like to ask people uh, how do you manage your own mental health? Like, are there any specific ways that you have found that help you or like any tips that you would give to somebody on managing their own mental health? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I'm definitely an extrovert. <laughs> so the pandemic has been not to my liking. I, I don't think anybody's liking, but especially those of us that are extroverts, we're just like extra um, trying to figure things out. Um, so for me, I, again, it comes back to like a support system, um, having you know, little things like I have friends that I text with about different topics that it's, um, it's called like, I'm not sure if I can curse, but, 
but it's called like shit talkers. So like that's what the categories are called. And we just talk about random things. Some of it is like, oh my gosh, did you see this happen um, with this person in the disability community and others are, you know, really to different topics. So having those connections with people um, really helps me to, to just kind of continue to, to connect and um, have, yeah, have meaningful relationships um, and, and kind of build those connections. Another thing is dancing. I love to dance. Um, and it's a way to get some type of exercise in during this time. Um, so I dance here at home um, and stuff. And when, whenever this is over, hopefully dancing at places. Um, and I think trying journaling has been also big for me. I, I like to journal. I like to craft. Um, and I, I'm actually staying right now with my sister and her husband and, and um, my nephew. And so I've been doing lots of crafting. Um, with my nephew and he loves it and I love it. So, so it's a lot of fun. Um, so I think those three things like having community be um, a big part of what I'm doing. Yeah, that need for connections was always important. And I think we're seeing, especially now with the pandemic, you know, how much more we really need it than perhaps we realized before. Mm -hmm. Thanks for sharing your personal tips with managing your mental health. I'm sure there's some people out there who can relate to some of those or maybe like, hey, I didn't think about trying crafting. Um, thank you for talking to me. I'm really excited that you joined me today. I've been looking forward to this. Is there any like last second things that you wanna throw out that maybe we didn't ask you about? Um, no, thank you so much for having me. Um, I love talking, so <laughs> this works. Um, and yeah, I, I think people should just really um, I think the focus on mental health is really important, like you said, figure out how they're dealing with mental health in this time. Um, and also, you know, trying to be present and, um, you know, education doesn't go away during this time and IEPs don't go away. So trying to navigate all of those moving parts um, from different communities is so important. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mental Health Crossroads podcast, where we explore the intersection of mental health and developmental disabilities. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to visit our website at mhddcenter.org and follow us on social media at mhddcenter. Thank you.